0: So you can't grow forever on a finite planet. This truth at this point is self-evident. The mindless activity of growth, 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 more, 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 the addiction to GDP growth and these insane metrics that measure the health of our society and our economy, just based on how much stuff is coming out, how many transactions are going, who's bouncing money from one side to the other. This is not working. And so-called green growth has been proven to be an illusion. So what's the solution to this? Many ecological economists, activists, scientists, and people who use their brain to think have called for what they call degrowth. It's a very controversial term that you know uh, polarizes people. Does that mean eco-austerity? Does that mean we're gonna impose poverty and we're gonna take away your cheeseburger and your car and all these things? Does that mean we're, we're gonna go back to living in caves and rubbing sticks together to make fire? Does that mean the end of progress as we know it? Does does that mean the end of technology and growth and innovation as a whole concept? Or could it mean something new, something different? Could it mean an opportunity to restructure our priorities? The opposite is true. What if to fundamentally alter our societal priorities away from output, 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 endless growth and blind expansion to doing what is intentional, moving away from a for-profit world to a for-purpose world? Come on, let's go. This is it right here. We're living on a walkable street, narrow, no cars, just people living in the moment. There's not a lot of extreme energy use going on right now. No one is is burning anything. No one is is churning things out. No one's destroying anything. People are living happily. If we reduce our energy demand, we can actually meet needs at a greater level. So you want a smaller cell phone. You want a smaller bill at the end of your meal, right? So these are the kind of reductions that need to happen. The decommodification of everything in life to move away from the wheels of this endless market activity so that we're doing things intentionally, on purpose based on our actual needs, not the the demand of the endlessly expanding game. So true growth, evolution, is learning from your mistakes, and we're making mistakes, all right. So our very attitude to change and new development is of a toddler saying, no, you can't tell me no. When in reality, it should be, okay, fine, let's grow up. Let's upgrade everything in our life. Let's redesign our environments so that are actually based around our needs. Let's start using more with less instead of just throwing <laughs> constant chaotic production, development, destruction into the world and hoping that it meets our needs when we know that it doesn't. I'm here in Bogota, Colombia, a place with much lower GDP than the United States. It's a city with millions of people living in it, but it uses drastically less energy than other cities of similar sizes. There are great public transit systems. It's walkable. The climate is nice, so things are designed to not need air conditioning and heat. So the city is designed to be connected to the environment that it's in. That's really what we're getting down to. Designing things in an intentional way, moving away from a for-profit world, moving into a for-purpose world. The old world is ending.
1: And we have the opportunity to rethink everything.
0: This is a show about the systemic problems in our world.
1: And the real solutions we have today.
0: To transition from an apocalyptic storm of war, scarcity, and ecological collapse. To create an abundantly advanced collaborative society.
1: That sustains all life.
0: You may think it's an impossible dream.
1: But the alternative is an inevitable nightmare.
0: We're your hosts, Matt Holton,
1: Amanda Smith,
0: and Zachary Marlow. And together,
1: we can move past this economic absurdity
0: and come together to actualize our collective potential to create something completely new. We are
1: moneyless Society.
0: okay we are live and we're here today with the great Timothee Perique
2: a i'm a researcher in ecological economics at the university okay. of lund
0: actually i don't need to introduce you you just did okay
2: <laughs> we're rolling <laughs> we're live we're going
0: here this is the 21st century <laughs> gonna... we're we're blasting across the the worldwide web we're using satellites to communicate with each other we're at our little battle stations we're, we're going we're going all right so tim is uh, an excellent researcher an excellent voice of sanity in a crazy world that's destroying itself uh, at an ever rapidly rapidly increasing and accelerating pace and i think that is the essential thing that we're going to talk about today which is the idea of degrowth of scaling back, slowing down, chilling out, telling the economy to smoke a joint and go out on the lake. Basically, that's what we're doing. That's all we're advocating here. It's not that radical, right? So Tim, uh, you can start out maybe just defining degrowth and talking about kind of where we are in this movement, what that means, and why it's not really such a scary word to begin with.
2: Yeah, I I, I love what you said. Like, you know, I'm a bit advocate for naps. Uh, I'm a nap (laughs) activist. I think everyone should have the right- who have naps. Uh, I've been conducting so some nap, naptivism of myself, just doing outrageous naps in uh, public places, at universities to raise awareness about the need for sleep. And I think yeah, we can see degrowth as a moment where basically uh, we, we need the economy to take a nap right now. Uh, we need that moment of rest. We need it for nature, but we also need it for ourselves in the same way that when you wake up from a nap, You know, you're giving yourself the mind like a little reset uh, where you can just process what has happened and trying to recenter, you know, your analytical uh, capacity to solve problems. So we need a huge reset of how the economy works, and we're not going to we're not managing to do this by forever reinforcing the way the economy works, which actually makes the problem even more difficult to solve. So, yes, let me start with a, a, a definition then, yeah. I mean, to, to be more precise, like degrowth is a democratically planned downscaling of production and consumption. So I'm going to add stuff to that definition because I think every time you define degrowth, you need to mention five elements. So now in this one, I've just mentioned two elements, so democratically planned, Downscaling of production and consumption. So the first element here is a reduction of production and consumption. That's a very macroeconomic concept. We're talking at the level of an economy. You want to compare before and after, after the transition, you want your levels of production and consumption to be lower. If you measure it with GDP or any aggregated measure of production, you want that to be smaller. So that's the first core feature, which I think differentiates degrowth from circular economy by economy, uh, green growth, and other forms also of uh, fully automated uh, luxury communism, eco-modernism, uh, some forms of, uh, you know, Promethean uh, uh, socialism. So that's the key feature, is less production and consumption. But then... You need to add at least four features, democracy, justice, uh, sustainability, and well-being. The first one I said, it's democratically planned in the sense of degrowth is a voluntary, uh, self-conscious, organized transition. It's not like, like a recession where you're trying to grow, but you don't manage to. And so your economy topples over. You get unemployment, you get poverty, doesn't function well. No, that's not like this. It's not an amputation. It's rather like a diet. So you're planning to purposefully, we'll see why, for environmental and social reasons, you want to slow down your economy. And you want to control the way you're doing that because you want that uh, slowdown to also achieve uh, – a bunch of social and ecological objectives. And so the first objective is really to lighten environmental footprint. I say this like that to lighten because today, degrowth applies to countries that have overshoot their planetary boundaries. You could call them biophysically obese countries. So basically every high income countries. These countries, they've tried to reduce. Their footprints, while growing or while remaining, uh, the, you know, sustaining their economic size, they have not managed. Hence, you know, that kind of emergency break of degrowth, trying something new. And so, the first thing you want is, of course, whatever reduction of production and consumption you do, you need to see footprint going down. Otherwise, you know, you've screwed it up. Otherwise, that that wasn't the kind of that wasn't a well planned. Uh, reduction of production and consumption. So that's the first thing. Now I'm adding, so democratically planned downscaling of production and consumption to lighten environmental footprint. And then I'm going to add two features, justice and well-being. So to lighten environmental footprint while reducing inequalities and improving well-being. So that has to do with the design of that slowdown. And that has to do with things we will talk plenty about, meaning the social limits of economic growth and capitalism as a system in order to ensure uh, fair access to goods and services and well being in general. So, here, the kind of like the core assumption of the concept of degrowth is that we can slow down the economy, which is only necessary for environmental reasons, but which can also be um, an opportunity to reduce inequality and to improve quality of life in these high income countries so that's my basic definition of of degrowth we can start with so really quickly um <clears throat> yeah i love that and i, I just want to say really
0: quickly that for me degrowth is as you said that sort of volley of all those different sort of systems like you know uh anarcho whatever you know co- you know fully luxury automated communism i think like all of the systems, all the beliefs, all the, um, maybe not all, but many of these perspectives, I think, um, are required to create a new kind of synthesis. And that's ultimately what we're trying to talk about here is a systemic change, a change to a complex system that we can't just change one element in the way that degrowth is not just, you can't just, you know, turn the knob down on the economy and slow it down. It requires these other complex shifts. And that's ultimately what we, I think we'll sort of discuss through the, as we wind our way through this conversation, but I, I just want to, I want you to address one of the first critiques that I get often, which I think is a very arrogant or ignorant, uh, critique of degrowth. that it's, Oh, it's austerity. It's ecological, or it's, 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 it's mm-hmm. a eco-fascist austerity, eco-austerity. Can you, mm-hmm. can you, can you address that?
2: That's, that's a strange criticism because austerity is, Basically, it's, it's a neoliberal strategy that consists in slashing public expenditures in order to stimulate economies, so basically to maximize economic growth. And so I, I find it rather strange, whereas if you look at uh, what degrowth proposes in detail, basically proposes uh, an improvement of public services, a widening of access to universal services like healthcare, housing, energy, uh, food. All of that. So it's it's the contrary of austerity. I like Georges Monbio that summarized it by saying, you know, it's it's a private sufficiency for kind of public abundance. There's this concept of sort of like communal luxury. Uh, Jason Hickel talks about like radical abundance. So there's this idea of basically sharing more so that you can improve kind of like widely shared quality of life. And in that sense, it's it's the opposite, I think, of uh, austerity, which austerity suffers from these um, monomanic obsession for economic growth, in the sense where you're willing to slash a public service like education or healthcare, which should be the end goal of any economy. You know, that's what we have an economy for. To organize the satisfaction of concrete needs, and austerity is basically we're going to sacrifice this in order to maximize an imaginary indicator, GDP, or even more imaginary the debt ratio to GDP. And then you're like, well, wait a second, it's a little bit upside down. So we're sacrificing the, the the end goal in order to get the means. So I think people that criticize degrowth as austerity, uh, it's a good red flag to know they've not read much about it. Um, And while these was maybe acceptable, like in early 2000s, the concept of degrowth emerged in 2002 in France. So in 2003, four, five, people were like, Oh, what is this? Is this like austerity? I can understand that people were worried about this, but now we're like 20 years after there's been like hundreds of books and six hundred peer reviewed articles on the topic. You read the Wikipedia page of degrowth, you know it's it's pretty clear what it's about. Uh, and it's not uh, about that kind of austerity.
0: It's a ben shapiro level argument you know to say to not understand something and like people are writing whole books about it like that guy mike or lee phillips he's writing whole people are writing whole books about how degrowth is austerity and eco you know they're trying to take away our cheeseburgers i mean that's really what it kind of comes down to is that they're being they're they're, they think that it's like they're being told no that you can't keep growing that we can't keep expanding i mean and that's really what it is you are being told no we can't grow forever but we don't need to what degrowth is essentially for me is elegance. It's, it's uh, ephemeralization, as, as Buckminster Fuller called it. It's efficiency. It's the purpose of an economy to reduce waste and increase efficiency, to use less resources and get more reward. And that's what technology has allowed us to do. Sorry, Amanda, yeah. you wanted to jump in there.
1: No, you're fine. No, I just love the points that are being made here, especially that um, our friend here has pointed to the fact that what we have now is austerity in all the ways that the most basic needs are, as he said, slashed uh, or, you know, cut or withheld for lack of better terms, um, for, at, for at ransom for a prize. Austerity is what we have now. If you think back to the blizzard that hit Texas in what, what was it, 2020 or 2021 and how so many people froze to death and, and then they had these $1,000 light bills and whatnot, like having to pay exorbitant prices to access our basic needs, that's an abstract form of austerity. But the direct form of austerity we have is uh, our government and corporations just blatantly holding what we need for ransom like and just doling it out a little bit at a time to us per how much labor or money we're willing to sacrifice for it like that's austerity but being told you can't have your guns or your cheeseburgers or go to disney world more than once a year that's not austerity okay and we just i just really hope we can all get past this together and that brings me to the point that i would love to make and a burning question i've had for some time now and uh to to direct it to our friend here in particular, how do we put consumption back in the bag? Uh, you know, that there's the saying, how do you put technology back in the bag and so on, uh, as if you know, whatever it is that's causing the problem, can you put it back? Can you clean up this spilled milk? Obviously, I don't think we can. Consumption has led us to such um uh, paradigm um, Influenced by entitlement, uh, we get to things like what Marlo was speaking about these books being written about, oh no, austerity, they're going to take what we like away from us. But as you said, uh, no, we're going to be sure that you have an abundance uh, of your needs and wants and in a way that is rational and efficient better for the environment, better for well-being, which I'm pretty sure translates into public health, yes. So how would you tell somebody such as what Marlo uh, mentioned speaking to this, uh, you know, oh no, don't take these things, you know, these plastic doodads that I love so much buying impulsively when I'm checking out at Walmart with my groceries that, because I think that's what a lot of people envision is that all the fun will go away. All of the the little things that fill the void in their selves will go away. Um, instead of realizing that through efficiency and rational management of resources, that void will be filled in an organic way. Like they won't need all of this junk and waste to fill
2: whole. That's, that's where I think the twist is happening. Uh, like life, modern life in capitalism is not one of abundance and you know constant joy. And it's at least for the majority of people, uh, so the truth of the matter is, and that's a fact, and that's where ecological economics is useful, any economy as a biophysical metabolism, like imagine your human body and you know you need to inger, ingest some food and you need to find a place to reject uh, your your whatever comes out. Same for an economy. An economy is tra- traversed by what we call throughput, you know, of energy and matter and water going there and having impact on ecosystems. Uh If you admit, if you accept the fact that somehow ecosystems have a maximum carrying capacity and they all have, that's just, you know, ecological knowledge, that's what scientists tell us. A pond, a fishery, the climate as a whole, they each have threshold, which we should not cross. That's the concept of planetary boundaries. Then it means that somehow we have a limited ecological budget, a limited carbon budget, limited water budget, limited land budget. And so basically, once you admit this, uh, you realize that your economy can only expand in proportion to your ability to reduce, you know, how nature intense your production is. But you also realize that somehow the idea of exponential growth, so that economy like doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling, it's not going to work for a very long time. You can have... You know slow growth at moments where you somehow you manage to clean up your production for a bit and that can last but at some point you're reaching the limit and once you admit that somehow they are absolute biophysical limits to economic life then you're faced with a question we don't often discuss sharing once you have a limited budget we need to share and that's the problem today out of the very limited carbon budget The large part of it is being monopolized by a minority of people who, yes, have a nice life, but that means it deprives the majority of others from means of well-being. And so degrowth in the sense of a better, more equitable sharing of or limited natural resources here for me is a pathway to improve well-being.
1: Is there a way that you would better um, describe the concept of sharing in the economy that you speak to? Because what I encounter a lot is when you tell people that we need to share in some sense, they automatically assume you are saying that you're okay with scarcity. They interpret that as we would be in a place of tangible scarcity and being forced to share things like some, you know, um, dystopian communist uh, landscape or something.
2: Yeah. So here we need to do a bit of economic theory. So basically, there are four different ways where you can transfer the ownership, the ownership of uh, goods and services. So basically, we call this protocols of allocation. So the way we move things in the economy was they have been produced. Uh, one way we know very well is market exchange. If you want to transfer, like if you want to give me the chair you have in your office, you know, I can give you money, you give me the chair. we exchange that chair.
1: That's true, there exactly. are
2: three alternative ways of allocating things in the economy. Uh, there is a political attribution, there is reciprocity, and there's the logic of the gift. So basically, you could give me the chair for nothing. I'm your friend. And I need the chair and you're like, well, you need it. I give it to you. Or you could be part of, let's say, an object sharing network where you don't know me or what, but you give me the chair because you know that at some point in the future, when you need a chair, I'll give you back the chair. Many societies organize, organize a location with this. Or it can be a logic of, uh, you know, political attribution in the sense of the municipality, the commons, uh, the the... The family, the state will somehow be like, oh, you know, we're going to take bits of chairs for some people and we'll give it back to others, either part of a, you know, a retirement scheme or a redistribution scheme. Right now, in capitalist societies, and when I say capitalism, I mean like these societies where market exchange has become the kind of hegemonic uh, means of allocation. So every time we think of Allocating things, we need, oh, there needs to be more monetary transactions. So, if you want to solve poverty, which, for example, poor people, they are living in scarcity, I mean, they need to have more money so then they can buy everything they need. If you're homeless in Paris, it's because you don't have enough money to rent an apartment from a rich person owning that apartment in Paris. So, you could say, you need some money to rent. Or you could also say, wait a second, what if housing? Wasn't a commodity. Was if instead of using the market as a means of allocation for housing, we had another system? It's not science fiction. If you go to the city of Vienna in Austria, they don't have a market for housing or actually they have a very specific ways of allocating. Sixty percent of it is social housing. So it's not a market. It's a queue system with specific protocols, a bit like organ donation. So if you have a young kid's family, blah blah blah, migrants, you can skip ahead of the queue. Depends on priority. It's a complex system, but that's how it allocates. Doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or if you're a minimum wager. Doesn't matter. And then the rest is not for profit, market exchange. So basically Houses, they're owned by kind of not-for-profit associations with control prices. So then it's more a logic of reciprocity. You buy your apartment at a limited price and you will... You you kind of vouch to sell it back at the very same price, and we see that today I think one big part of degrowth, a part that people don't really understand, because here it's a qualitative change. It's about decommodifying the economy. Many things we used to allocate using the market exchange, now we will do it politically using the logic of the gift, the reciprocity, and uh, market and and political distribution. Which and then that's my argument can be just improved reduce inequality and improve well-being because then these goods essential goods and services they'll be more accessible to all the people today we don't have access to them that's so, the key so word the key... right
0: there oh i'm just gonna say that that's the key <laughs> word there is access and we talk a lot mm-hmm. on this program about an open access economy on an access system where you know the we eliminate the market altogether and that's really what we we're working toward we're working toward the decommodification of everything because if you really get right down to it there you know eliminating that arbitrary sort of ha- a hierarchy of needs that says, you know, you don't need uh, social goods to live, that you don't need things that increase mental health, you don't need, you know, XYZ to live, like what should be commodified, I personally believe, and I think that many, many social scientists are agreeing that, first of all, a lot of these commodified goods and luxuries don't actually improve happiness, you know, to, to say earlier that, you know, the the Western nations are living a good life in comparison to the peoples that they're systematically depriving to get the access to the things that they want and closing them and extracting their resources so that they can enrich themselves. I grew up in a wealthy suburban uh, home that was fucking soulfully deadening, you know, and there's, there's so much good social science out there to say nothing of like, you know, money can't buy you love, all these platitudes and all these statements and poems and mystical treatises on the ways that wealth and possessions do not make you happy. And they actually create a gnawing hunger inside of you. So a beautiful and elegant antidote to that is an open access society where, you know, ownership transitions into the circulation of things. We're not exchanging, I give you this, you give me that in this very disconnected, parasitic sort of. We're against each other. We're competing over scarce resources. That's that's what Richard Wolf said on our on on a camera for my film about the market. That it's a means to manage scarcity, and that I was thinking about that. I was going to sleep last night. That we have an economic system that is based on scarcity. It's based on competition. You know, it's based on these mechanisms of of exponential doublings of, of compound interest that's embedded into the system, which I'd like to talk about in a minute. But, you know, we have the system that's based on competition over scarce resources. We fundamentally, in our economic paradigm, neoclassical economics does not understand. Well, first of all, it doesn't understand things like love. This this little kitten that's running around out here, tear around the place, causing ha- havoc is immeasurably precious. But to the market? It doesn't exist unless i'm buying it a pooper scooper it doesn't exist unless yep. you know i'm buying it food that is destroying immeasurably more you know more value in real ecosystems to make this you know, singular product of cat food that i can give to this thing like the market doesn't understand love it doesn't understand quality time there is no qualitative analysis in our entire yeah. economic system
2: and and that's the point you know it's here here we need a little like theoretical pause to really understand what is commodification because one question i'm asking myself and you have a spectrum you know you have project like uh the power uh project i don't know if, if if our listeners are familiar with this economic system uh, uh of of uh participatory economics which is big, basically uh, an economy where you don't have any markets you know that's referred to as the kind of market abolitionist people that want protocol of allocation where you don't have any markets uh, in france with similar similar that's one end of the spectrum the other end is like the full like milton Friedman free market everything is a commodity kind of X fantasy and i think right now we realize that we live in mixed economies where we see that tendencies to commodify more and more things and i think we realize we've gone too far and then i what i'm asking myself as an economist is what are the kind of things that should be decommodified what are the kind of things that could remain commodities and under what conditions and to answer that question we need to realize that a commodity is it's i like the the word in French. you know it comes from like commode means like something that is handy that is easy that is simplified so basically when you take something i'm sorry we're going to take your cat as an example and we want to turn that cat th- this into this cat th-
0: this cat right here it's actually a friend's cat that i'm accessing right now i don't own <laughs> Isn't this that cat. you can't you can't own a cat this is Arjang my good friend's but cat that's,
2: Jacques. that's the thing After let's Jacques say question. you know that's that cat is is unique it has a name it has a personality <laughs> as they all are. it's it's a living being but like what we can do what we can do is If we want to turn this into a commodity, first we need to privatize it. It cannot exist on its own. It needs to be the property of someone. So let's say it's, you know, we say it's the property of your friend. Then you need to standardize the cat. It can not only be, you know, it needs to be comparable to other cat like product. So we're going to say it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's going to be horrible, but <laughs> no, this, this is, is amazing. Standardize life.
1: <laughs> standardized so cat like <laughs> product. That's you know, it's,
2: it weigh that much. It's got that number of years. It's that species of cat Has this
1: many lives. <laughs> uh,
2: exactly whatever you want standardized. Once you've privatized, standardized it. So quantified some of its features uh, that allow to basically disembed disconnect the, the unique cat from its unique environment so that it can be compared to all the potential other cats you could sell. Then you can put a price. So it's not a cat, it's a, it's a 100 euro cat, or it's a 1,000 euro cat, or it's a 10,000 euro cat, depending on its features. And once you've done this, you have simplified the existence of a cat so that the cat could fit within a market exchange because a market exchange happens through price signals. So now, finally, we can make an economic decision. Someone sees the cat and be like, it's a 10,000 euro cat, too expensive for me. I don't buy it. Someone else see it. So you as a seller, you can maximize the price of your cat. And me as a buyer, I can minimize the price of your cat. And through market equilibrium, we hopefully reach an optimal allocation of cats within society. So that's a terrifying vision. What I'm going (laughs) to argue here... Is that when you throw things? No, that's utopia. That's the capitalist <laughs> utopia right there. Yeah, I mean, some some people, uh, you know, would argue that you know capitalism is very good at doing this. And if we were to do this with everything, organs, uh, cats, political parties, campaign money, everything, then everything will be for the best. What I'm arguing is when you throw things through that machine, commodifying machine, you strip them of some of their essential features. And that's the problem. Love is being evacuated from the cat. All relationship that you have with your friend's cat, what your friend had, the history with the cat goes away because the only thing that will remain is the cat. It's market value. Maybe it's the price tag and maybe the, you know, it's the name of a species and it's weight and that'll be it. And so what I'm arguing is that for the kind of things whose quality is what we try to cherish. So, for example, when we look at healthcare or education, it's not about quantity, it's not about price, it's about specific human relationships between teachers and their students, between doctors and their patients. We need to be very careful about turning this into commodities. And so, here, the argument is that the more we turn things into commodity, two things happen. First, that muscle up or economic rationality, the more commodities you have uh, around you and the more time you spend playing uh, the, the, the market game, the more you think like a rational or more economicus, the way you, where you want to live. You're like, you're not thinking about like, I want to live here because it's close to the forest and because I've got my friends in the neighborhood. You're like, oh, that's nice uh, square meter value. And it's rising because they're planning to build a subway. And you know, that's a nice housing investment. Same thing with your studies. You're not like, I would love to be a poet because you know, my dream no, no. You're like, okay, I can compare like the wage I'm hoping to have later on on the labor market. And so I can make the decisions of what kind of job I want to do based on this. And the more we play the commodity game, the more we tend to see the world through the lens of commodity. And then all of a sudden, you discover a new species in the forest or uh, you have somehow an oil spill. And then you think like an economist, you're like, I'm just going to compare the cost of that in monetary terms. And here we evacuate all the social ecological complexity of life. And so we impoverish, I think, the way we see the world. That's the first risk, which is more on the analytical side, on the social kind of imaginary side. The second is very practical. The more commodities you have around you, the more you use market exchange as a means of allocation, the more you're dependent on purchasing power, which is a huge problem if you have an economy uh, with high levels of economic inequality. Mm. And so that means that if you need money to access housing, food, healthcare. Uh, social relations, the fact of having a cat or not, you know, these kind of things. You need money for everything. If you don't have money, you don't have a life. You're out. Okay. Which is a problem compared to a society, let's say, where you have universal access to at least healthcare, education, these kind of stuff, uh, universal access to to cats. Uh, Then compared to that, you have a bit of an independence let's say you you, you lose your job or let's say you decide to be a poet for a while or take care of a you know a a sick family friend and you don't have an income for a while you're not going to be excluded totally from society compared to a a society where everything is commodified and i think if we want to defend the argument that uh, the economy is a means for well-being and so so it's also a collective forms of organization we cooperate into the economy so that we can you know, work together to achieve something we could not do on our own. Uh, I think it's a pretty nice ideal to go towards broader and broader universal access to goods and services as we move on. This is the kind of way you measure the performance of your economy. Oh, my economy is so performant that if right now I fall sick I will have access to good quality healthcare, will not fall into poverty, you know, these kind of stuff. That's how you measure, like the resilience, the ability of, you know, sustained high level of quality of life regarding the uncertainties of life, which I think capitalism and these striving to commodify everything and to make every single thing dependent of your purchasing power is not working, especially for the majority of people that are just more and more in the monetary danger zone. That Jacques, was purring, was, entire,
0: Jacques <laughs> was purring through the entire Jacques through the uh speech I think, just I now. think this is an agreement then yeah he, he loved that um yeah and I, I think that point is so powerful and and you know it just it underscores the the fundamental disconnect I think in our whole society and you said it perfectly it's a game we're playing a game this is not economics this is not about economics we have we have exited true rational thought and we are playing this game of, of homo economicus of monopoly of commodifying everything and gamifying things and quantifying things to the point where they lose any real qualitative value and so you have absurd statements even from people with good intentions saying oh we just need x billion dollars to solve the climate crisis not understanding that when you think about the world in this way you are reducing a complex system a living system i was just thinking about this earlier that like if we so desire like degrowth is like Within the bounds of degrowth, it's, it's not like we're going to have less of everything. It's like, what do you want to have more of? Do you want to have more food that's regeneratively grown, that's actually sequestering carbon from the atmosphere as you grow it? Do we want to produce a regenerative way to uh, breed super cats that is, you know, uh, you know, in balance with our economy or our, our ec- ecological, you know, situation like we could do these things. We can create an organic culture and actually create true abundance. Even with things like I'm very interested in like regenerative biomaterials, using things like hemp and bamboo to create complex metals and carbon fibers and, you know, carbon nanotubes and all this really complicated stuff. I was researching last night about there are researchers. I was using chat GPT, this fucking AI to give me like the the names of uh, researchers in my city that are studying this stuff so I can interview them. But they're using like they're, they're growing DNA cultures in a lab they're growing biological tissue for use in computing and like we can have this organic culture where we actually do transcend the limitations of the current scarcity that we experience that we can't have a world where everyone has a fucking f150 but we don't want that world first of all but we can have a world of true and greater abundance than we think i mean researching things like the potentials of geothermal energy if we can if certain companies like a company called um i'm i'm blanking on the name, but it's a company in Australia. They're working on this deep drilling that utilizes existing fossil fuel infrastructure to access the infinite heat of the earth underneath our feet. If we can figure out how to use nature, not use nature, but work with nature as this infinite energy generating perpetual motion machine, you know, the waves, the wind, the sun, all of these things, we can tap into that and figure out more sustainable streams for the materials to make those things that aren't extracting from humanity or the environment, we can transition to this sort of post-scarcity system. And that's really what we're advocating for, is going beyond the limited constraints of what the market mentality imposes on us. But to get to that, we are in such a dire strait. We are in such a... I need to degrow. Hang on. Hang on. All my alarms are going off.
1: I'm going to jump in if
0: this alarm this alarm just said hustle it just said get up there and hustle and make make uh make money value for the market <laughs>
1: that's funny uh, if I could just really quickly um three things first of all beautiful explanation of commodification this is somehow the first time in two seasons we've arrived at this point of discussion and it was absolutely necessary people uh that uh are even remotely aware of um commodification or pricing points or how it is uh, we access things, another another wonderful point you made about allocation and the different forms of allocation. you know, obviously don't always understand the mechanism behind that. And so for people who may be struggling to keep up with this very dense dialogue that we're uh, working our way through today, it sounds like what you're saying is the difference in austerity and abundance is the difference in commodification and decommodification. And um, seeing things through that lens, understanding that one of the five elements, as you said, right, five elements of degrowth is to decommodify uh, things so that access becomes more open, right? Um, And so that to me is kind of the summary of what you were saying there for a few minutes. Um, And please correct me if I'm wrong. Now, having said all that and having us went through that whole dialogue about decommodification and open access and sharing and whatnot I feel like we'd be doing our listeners a huge disservice and and my and our friend I should say Colin R. Turner with sharebay.org to not slip in uh that plug and I I wonder if you've heard of Colin Turner and sharebay.org because he is a a, you know over there in Europe um and uh
0: yeah all you honkies like to hang out together over there in Europe (laughs)
1: I'm just saying. uh, Okay, so it's early and now I sound stupid, but oh well. No, you Um, don't. No, you don't. But no, I I encourage our listeners to look up Sherbay.org and uh, listen to Colin's TED Talks and really start to dive into the concept of open access economies, where, as our guest here was speaking about, there are other ways to allocate resources. It doesn't have to be through a market, which also, as our guest was saying, is a a global hegemony at this point because of capitalism. Yeah, I know. Okay, I'm Appalachian. I I can't always pronounce things very uh, elegantly
2: true can, can I can I give a, a just a concrete example of that so pe- people can just understand like things we we used to like Airbnb
1: mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it's the perfect example of those are evil, of by the two systems that do exactly the same thing if you compare couch surfing and Airbnb so both these are allocation platforms try to match people that have you know an apartment you're willing to share with people that need an apartment at a specific moment in time. The two platforms are doing exactly the same thing, fulfilling the same function. We, we, we could live in a world where there is all apartments or on couchsurfing and Airbnb doesn't exist. We could live in a world where there is no couchsurfing where all apartments are on Airbnb. And here we remember we have this kind of spectrum of a fully commodified society and a fully decommodified society. So let's stick for housing right now. And just the first thing, first is to realize the possibility of each system both of them are equally possible like they do the same thing so what we have to ask ourselves is what kind of social dynamics do we see in a system organized like airbnb and what do we see in a system organized like couchsurfing and tim the, can i jump in real I, quick here yeah yeah
0: Cause because uh, I'm so glad you said couch surfing, because I fucking love couch surfing is my favorite way to travel. Hitchhiking is my favorite way to travel, ride sharing, sharing. I love I'm a sharing buff over here. I love sharing. So I just actually uh used couch surfing to great success to uh finagle a absolutely beautiful choice, like couldn't have been better, uh, floor with a mattress to sleep on in New Orleans at the height of Mardi Gras. Like I found a really cool dude. I I looked through profiles. I found this awesome artist dude. Um, I'm gonna plug his name uh, if I can remember it. But um, I'm blanking right now because it's early and we're 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 accommodating our dear friend here uh, who's in <laughs> Europe. But yeah, so I I I, it, I had this experience with Airbnb where um, I was going to rent a place and um, ended up not doing it. Didn't go there. Canceled weeks in advance. The landlord, the micro landlord, was like, "No, I'm not going to give you back a refund because you know I'm losing out on money, on potential future money that you didn't yeah. even stay in my place. I'm still deserve, I still deserve a cut." I went through this horrible process of like this dehumanized, you know, inhuman, antisocial reaction or relate anti relationship with this commodified housing system that is so parasitic to the housing market because people can buy up a house. And they can Airbnb it out and make money off of it without really providing social value. Whereas the alternative is couch serving. Like I lived in, I I found this Russian dude in LA a couple, like last summer. And I lived in, I lived on his couch for a month. And it was just me and like, like six Russian dudes living in this house. And it was awesome. We watched movies together. We cooked together. It was a complete exchange of cultures. We had this really beneficial, vibrant, social community vibe that you could never in a million years get from an Airbnb. Yeah. Even even I, apartments in New York City is like six people who don't know each other. I'm that. in an apartment right now. I do not know the two I, people who live above me. We're not friends. We have hey, no relationship.
2: Here, I, here I, I think there are two points we need to make that are very important is like people would say like, yeah, but on Airbnb, it, it's kind of like, it functions better, you can do it faster, there's a high level of trust, of certainty, all of that. Also, you can just have access to appointments when people are not there, which is maybe not necessarily the case of couch surfing. All of that has nothing to do with the way the system is organized. Couchsurfing could do this perfectly well. The first point is, the more you have appointments on the Airbnb, the less you will have on couchsurfing. Because as we say, it kind of legitimate this kind of homo economicus lens, and 20 years ago, you're living town for the weekend on the holiday, and let's say one of your friends be like, oh, Marlo, you're just not there. Do you mind if we crash at your apartment? You'd be like, yeah, hell yeah, of course. I'm not using it. Today, people will have, like they'll be like, "Uh, yeah, I could do that, or... I could put it on Airbnb and get that amount of money. So even though you don't do it, you always have what economists call an opportunity cost, and what I call an opportunity cost syndrome. Whatever you choose, you're always comparing. Oh yeah, I could rent it for free. I could just, you know, let my apartment be occupied by, uh, you know, migrants just right arriving in the country that have no money to give them time to settle. But uh, that would cost me this amount of money, which corresponds to the money I would have gotten if I had rented my apartment on Airbnb. So here, you can see that by removing the possibility of commodifying something, we actually enrich that we reinforce this kind of like the first thing we incentivize, we create the possibility for more gift sharing. That's the first thing. And also, uh, so f- this is for me, like, it's not only like we need to support couchsurfing and all this. No, we need to deconstruct Airbnb so that couchsurfing can thrive. And why is that important? Because any reciprocity sharing network, you know, works well beyond a certain threshold of, you know, critical mass. That's the same for self-organized uh, childcare circles, same for you know, houses swap or couchsurfing. It works very well if you have a lot of people on there because you go to a random city and then ah, you have access to an apartment, that's great. If you only have like you know 20 people there, obviously it's not gonna work and so you're not gonna put your apartment, you're not gonna participate and then that's gonna crash.
0: Another quick really big point here and this is something I'm just obsessed with because I think it's one of the fundamental truths of our society is consensus is that our whole society is based upon consensus. That because a lot of people use money and, and play the market game, it's dominant to the point where people don't even know there's other games. Even though they're going in between the sharing economy every time they say, hey, can you please pass the salt? Or can you bump, Can I bum a cigarette? You know, what David Graeber called everyday communism, where it's like someone hands you a tool. That's kind of an experience of sharing. You know, we don't think about it that. We don't think about the glue holding society together, being human beings sharing things without a commodity. Richard Wolf talks about the Thanksgiving dinner. We don't, your your mother doesn't hand you a drumstick at Thanksgiving dinner and you say, ah, yes, $5, please. Like that would be, that would destroy families. So why don't we (laughs) apply that same moral and ethic to the rest of
2: society? And even, I mean, let me give you an even common example. Every single time you find yourself in a queue, like a queue is a protocol of allocation. You go to a shop, you want to buy some whatever, and you queue first arrived first served. That's the principle of allocation. You could mark, you could commodify this, and you be every time you arrive to a place, you fast have a market pass. for fast pass, and the yeah. one that is most willing to pay will get first access. The second one will get second access. You could commodify this, and so it's been done in theme park. But most of the time, we have the experience of the queue as the kind of fair thing to to do. And sometimes, of course, we have bypass. If you have an old lady that come, or if pregnant women, you're like, okay, go first, obviously. And then you can see actually the complexity in that allocation system. And so we, and that's, I love the fact you mentioned David Graeber, because in his work, you know, it always reminds us that the first experience of social lives we have is in the sphere of the gift, where a baby and we're given everything for free, then reciprocity within the family where we do things, uh, you know, not based on commodity. And then When we get like early teenagers, we start to understand what money is. Then we start to play the market game, but that comes rather late. So it's kind of funny when people say that, oh, you know, capitalism is some part of human nature. I'm like, what? Capitalism is such a small sphere of life and it comes just so late compared to the logic of the gift and reciprocity and other means of allocation, which if you compare human history, have been just so much older institutions. And if you compare daily life today is also covering a, a, a larger span than the few hours where we play the capitalist game.
1: If I may jump in just really quick, Um, you were speaking about the commodification of housing and uh, I just recently ran across an ad. This is a new one on me. Maybe it's been around for a while. I'm not sure. But uh, it was something that really helped me uh, frame exactly uh, just how dystopian the commodification of everything has become and how these extra steps we're taking to share our assets, our resources and whatnot is uh, nullifying any 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 social value. Right. So I seen an ad for, it's an app where you get on and you input your details and you can rent out a closet in your house or your basement or half of your garage for storage. Mm. So you can help people store their stuff, right? Like the layers of indicators there that we are so obsessed with consumption and we are so overly commodified as a society that we are now to the point of selling space to people or renting space to people out of our own spaces instead of just opening up our spaces and sharing our spaces, right? Like, I don't know. To me, it blows my mind. And I didn't know if you had um, uh, ever encountered that that particular market and had the same sentiments. Like, we are renting closets for people to store their stuff in and going through those extra steps of, um, okay, well, I'm going to make it a commodity, which means there's going to be parameters. There's going to be permission. There's going to be contracts. And I think people have like this misperception that, um, that makes it an organized thing that makes it legitimate if you commodify it but uh, no really it just as i was saying nullifies any social value that you could have provided uh to um you know like on on a micro level between you and that person and on a macro level within your community because you're commodifying the the smallest simplest basic need uh but um moving forward you were talking uh, to us earlier before we started uh, before before we started recording and you said that there was a sign in your window. And that sparked an interesting conversation and it kind of ties into a question that I was hoping to get to before we uh, finish up today. Um what was that sign? It was about uh, a bank or a school or something along those lines?
2: Yeah, so I'm I'm at the uh, Department of Economics here at Lund university and i can see on the opposite side of my office a massive credit card uh, which i suspect is a price uh, that's uh, one of my colleagues at the department received from a big swedish bank so that gave this kind of like you know big check, uh like huge like this with which looks like a credit card from from that bank and for me that's a perfect symbol of of what's like our money and financial rationality is today invading spheres of life where it should never be in like science of anything is something that in the same way with science and politics is something that should be devoid of financial interest you know it's like the the pursuit of of truth and knowledge and and politics as the pursuit of, of justice and well-being you know and like the financial bits like the money like the money we invent, is just like those are means of doing things and right now i feel like it's been inverted in the sense of this has become this kind of the the matrix of of our society uh function and i i wanted to bounce on on what you said about this uh this market for storage space uh which we start to see here which is is doubly uh tragic because because it's also a symptom of how much we accumulate stuff. Exactly. <laughs> that, you know right. We end up being burdened. So we need to create a new market to store the stuff with other produced <laughs> and it's kind of a crisis of, of production. And then people, the funny thing is that they start feeling anxious about where to put their stuff, which is one mm-hmm. of the curse of abundance. So here you're like, if you're an anthropologist from space watching this, like I mean, you must be just laughing around. <laughs> so like, that, God,
1: that
0: is how I feel. Humans. That's how I feel every day of my life. That is my role. That is like, like the humans that I come so from.
2: stupid. But let me tell you something a bit more shocking. Um it, it, there are now like platforms where you can uh rent people uh to do things you want to do, like for example, queuing. Um, you know, you want to queue to get the latest iPhone, you know, you have to queue for like whatever, 15, mm. 20 hours before uh, you're the CEO of some kind of financial company. Obviously, you're not going to do that. So you on that platform and you can pay someone uh, $10 an hour or something to just stand for you. And so that's for me, like, that's here we've reaching a level of commodification where just human time like time of existence has become a community in itself and here how tragic it is because then uh besides just treating like like allowing the rich basically to just buy extra time of existence you you know like that movie from 2009 or something or 10 like called in time with justin timberlake i don't remember much but it's like a science fiction film where the currency there is actually minutes and seconds and everyone lives until 26 years old And then you can live then after that, as long as you have time in your time bank account, which is actually in your body. And so billionaires, they have like million of years in the bank account, so they live forever. And poor people, they usually die like shortly after that. So we're slowly getting to that dystopia where basically money can buy you time through here, the, the direct exploitation of someone That is just living in that society where you need to have access to money in order to just guarantee your well-being. So you're forced to basically go queuing so that someone gets the newest iPhone.
1: That is so the- um, mind-blowing. Uh, you you want to go ahead, Marlo? And I just really wanted to direct something to our guest here from an article that I was reading last night from the theworldbank.org, uh, which I think is going to have a lot of indicators in it as to how we are so very detached from the concept and the possibilities of what uh, degrowth can do for us as a society versus the things that we're striving for now, uh, seemingly blindly. But go on.
0: Well, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that I wanted to say there. I mean, we've commodified everything. We've actually commodified our own lives and our own identity, our own visual, the way that light bounces off our body and uh, you know, composes us into a frame in a, a cell phone. You know, yeah. we've commodified our identity. We've commodified an idea of ourselves. And actually, you know, Giannis Vera focus is talking about how we have to. Young people have to put, put out this commodified identity of themselves in social media or they can't get a job, you know, because they don't exist. I have a friend who doesn't do social media for his own health. And he can't get jobs because of it. He's a brilliant AI engineer who works at a grocery store uh, because he can't commodify himself and sell himself and play this market game. I was playing pool with some friends last night. I was playing with an Englishman and I was joking that like this is such an English thing to do, to like come to some place, some new place and impose a game on people that they don't know the rules to. And then when you when you inevitably win, you say we all have a fair shot. And so that that really is the the crux of one of the central like you said it's the matrix it's and it's money it really is i mean it's it's so rare to find people especially like economists people who study money who actually recognize what a social construct it is and what a toxic social pathogen that this thing that r- runs our entire life is that it's i was asking ai last night like to to find give me lists of people who are against money and it was like there just aren't many it gave me like five people i know there are more people out there that are like that that's a limitation of yeah. the technology in part but it is it's a true point that it's so rare to find people who will question the existence of this thing and, and say that there's not a threshold of commodification that we will tolerate like indigenous peoples as you said who lived for hundreds of thousands of years without this and many of them exp- yeah. explored or experimented with something like it and said fuck no like there's a, a, a this the statesman Kandiaronk, who is t- is described in Graber, Graber's last book, who said, like, we would not touch silver. We would not touch it. It's it, like thinking you can live in the kingdom of money and not be polluted by it is like thinking you can live in the bottom of a well and not get wet. So I just wanted – I can't – I couldn't help but – like Insert this into the conversation in some way because I think this is one of the essential parts of the degrowth conversation that isn't addressed often. And it's the cause or the central driving mechanism of infinite growth that we have a monetary system that is based on infinite exponential compounding interest, which is a feature that's existed from the very beginning of money. I mean, in Mesopotamia, there was compound interest, usury. They called it usury. We don't have it. We don't call it that. We just call it interest as if it's a fact of life. Yeah. there's a, go, few, go, go ahead, a few
2: things. There's a few things I need to bounce on here because I think I've got a bit. Um, I've got a, a more nuanced take towards money, uh, as as a social scientist. I think what I've discovered in my studies is that um, money is plural. So monies—they're really just diversity of monetary forms. And so, for example, if you compare uh, the dollar as a currency and the kind of relationship that come with. Uh, dollar relationship in certain markets uh, where you reach absolute toxicity, uh, really something socially undesirable. And you compare this to, let's say, a local currency somewhere in the social and solidarity economy in France. These have two different social dynamics. And I think uh, in, in the case of the local currency... Uh, the money itself money is you're right is a social convention so everything is socially determined into it but that also means you can turn it into everything you want the only uh, thing you will never be able to just overcome is the quantitative aspect so that's the ultimate limit of money for things that are qualitative, let's say the intre- intrinsic right of ecosystem to exist, that's something you will never be able to guarantee with money because money is a quantitative instrument. But I'm not sure I would defend uh, the full abolition of money in a sense of, uh, if you imagine a society, let's say, you know, the the good old like marketplace where once a week, you go to a place for like three hours that's the moment in the week where we're going to play market actors we know each other but to simplify that little moment of veggie exchanges we're still good to use the medium of money but that of course that medium of money is going to be framed by many social conventions the way that money is going to be printed it's going to be loaned it's going to be destroyed all of that integrates you know uh, ethical uh, cares for justice stuff like this redistributive mechanisms but if you do so, I don't think there is then something inherently wrong about money as a medium of exchange, except the fact that is slow, like uh, that is just only uh, quantitative. So in that sense, I think today, these complementary currencies, alternative currencies, I think, uh, as some people call them, and they're not all uh, beneficial. I think, you know, Bitcoin, for example, shows like how you can create New monetary forms that might be even worse
0: pure commodity, not even pure
2: commodity, but than previous ones. But we also have pretty good examples of uh, new monies that actually open up the transition to a post-monetary economy. And I give you a couple of examples because often uh, in France we have more than eighty local currencies. And some people, you look at a local currency that's going to exist for a few years and it, it stops to exist. And some people say, "Oh, it has failed." And it it's the failed kind of socialist experiment, you see so people return. The goal here, actually for a local currency, might be to fail in the sense of, imagine you're in a little village like this, you're starting to organize your, auto- your energy sufficiency, your food autonomy and all of that from a capitalist setting where you're very dependent from the outside. And so maybe you're gonna create a local currency in order to retake control of the economy by, you know, democratizing like monetary governance is giving you the means of among citizens, invest in the project you want to do that for a little while. And then as you do this, you're going to build a lot of relationships with people, you're going to get to know, and then you're going to get to trust them. And when you interact with people you trust, you don't really need money in the sense you can have like a, a more like flexible reciprocity network. And so sometime, the disparition, like the, the Collapse of a local currency is good because it means we've used it to the point where actually we raise trust level, which means now we can handle the daily things of economic life without the currency. or We just use it for certain things or we just use it to handle certain commodity in certain places with certain people. And so here I think we need to have a bit of a kind of a a toolbox of different monies we're using, different ways of framing these exchanges, and also a kind of dynamic perspective of where we're starting from, this hyper-commodified society, and ways of kind of escaping, sometimes gradually, uh, into a society where gift reciprocity and kind of like... uh, political allocation in the sense of democratically determined like commoning style uh, self-determined allocation is hegemonic compared to exchange allocation which may still exist in the same way that gift exists today in capitalist society is not the hegemonic form of allocation and that today will just be reversed
0: i i just want to say that uh i i actually totally agree with just about everything you said i think that there's a large conversation we could do in you know multiple whole episodes on like uh breaking down individual effects of extrinsic reward of ways that giving people an external reward for things and mediating exchanges does a disintegrate trust over time and there's a very complex thing but yeah i do want to to give a shout out to this um this group called it's at grass econ on twitter and i saw this the other day and and um it, it says this network of community inclusion currencies in Kenya shows only the tip of the iceberg of the potential of informal economies using traditional practices of mutual aid and decentralized ledgers to form complex, adaptive socioeconomic networks. And it, you can see here it's it's a it's a beautiful rhizomatic, you know, culture. Of, of all of these peoples using these different currencies that they've created for themselves. So I just want to say that I, I'm not for the abolition of money because that's an arbitrary authoritarian gesture. And I don't think it's effective and I don't think it's efficient. I think you're just going to martyr money, this thing that's, that we can, as you're saying, we can make it obsolete. That's what we talk about exactly. on this program. That's our language. That's That's our tact. We're trying to create better systems where the idea of coming together for three hours at a farmer's market eventually just becomes fucking quaint. Where we're like, we don't need to do this. We don't need this 16th century mercantile practice. We can design into our atmosphere and to our environment means for generation of all the needs of life in a regenerative, cyclical, perfectly, you know, harmonious and metabolically balanced form that we can create and design a society that meets our needs essentially for us with, you know, human participation at every at every turn, and you know, as far as accounting, the actual accounting because that's that's we talk about a resource based economy because our economic system is is fantasy land it's not an account of anything other than its own self referential gaming metric its own internal logic is all that it represents and you know it's of course a complicated thing it represents a consensus it represents you know, the stake that the 1% has in its existence. It represents, you know, the state control that that creates it. It represents all these other things. But ultimately, it's not an account of our actual resource capacities. And so long as we, on a macro level especially, we think about this in, a, in terms of trading and barter, Whereas we're talking about finance, we're talking about the large calculations and the really the algorithmic filtration system of decision-making that mandates what occurs in society. So if we talk about changing our ecological situation and adapting to our changing climate, if we talk about really fluidly adapting to climate change, you know the mechanism of creating money and then you know giving it to companies so that they can solve these problems ultimately is going to be the death of us all and i think that that's the that's the central thing there is such a nuance and a, a as you're saying a richness and a beauty and a, of a solution of solutions of millions of transitional yeah. moments and methods and systems and relationships and redefinitions and i think that there's no absolute that we have to transition in all these areas we have to walk our way from here to there just the way in the way that degrowth is not the end goal, it's not the end point. It's it's just a no, necessary uh, thing we have to take to get yeah, to it's something. A
1: phase. Yeah. And not it's a so phase, that's,
0: mom, of the phase. Capitalism is a phase.
1: It's the teenage angst <laughs> phase. That
2: that's where also I like to contrast like degrowth with the concept of post-growth, uh, which I put very close to post-capitalism and like post-growth that is necessarily post-capitalism. And so degrowth as a transitional phase of you could say. You know, that's the moment we're going to decommodify a lot of stuff. That's the moment we're going to slow down, where we're going to dismantle uh, certain institutions before uh, the, the existence of the for-profit company, for example, that kind of profitability is going to disappear. The profit motive, we're going to dismantle uh, close down certain financial markets. We're going to change, that's going to, that's the transition. The fucking and then priest, can, brother. <laughs> I mean, it's- We're going to we do it, he to, said. He's a scientist, <laughs> y'all. He's we also French. I mean, and very
0: smart, and he's quite handsome as well. So take it from him.
2: Well, thanks for all of that. But we, we need to be, I think, quite uh, lucid, a bit about like if you, if we're asking for a system change, and I think today that's the only thing that can take us uh, out of the ecological issues we're in. Uh, we need a, to- a total reset, and so. There's going to be some significant changes during that time, but we need to differentiate anal- analytically the things we need to do during that transition moment, and then the thing we, the, the system that will continue working with it in the very long time. So that, for example, when we talk about degrowth, and very often people tell me like, "Oh, but look, this not-for-profit, decentralized, nice cooperatives. Do you want them to degrow?" I'm like, "Or nice alternative monies and reciprocity networks and stuff like couchsurfing." I'm like, "Obviously not." What these institutions, organization, they are already living in a post-capitalist future, but they are not thriving. They're surviving in the cracks of you know, the capitalist matrix. What we want right now is to give them a space to thrive so that they can continue existing. And we want basically to expand that mode of thinking that these pioneers have created so that we could connect all of these spheres of society together so a full economy could function. Without the extractivist, productivist, consumerist, commercialist, utilitarist flows of the capitalist system we have today. So that's my first comment. But I want to say something very nerdy, and I'm sure people listening to that show are going to love that discussion. There's been that debate in ecological (laughs) economics since 2013 uh, on the question whether a positive interest rate on money is creating a growth imperative. And there's been a lot of I think misunderstanding of that issue because it's a very complex question. And some people have argued with very sophisticated theoretical models, like mathematical models, that in theory, you could have positive interest rate on money in a non-growing economy. And indeed, that's true if you have so many conditions that are never fulfilled, especially not today. So I mean, the reality of it is that today, these, the way money is being created, so it's been created that monetary creation and destruction has been basically um, given as a task to for-profit commercial banks. And these for-profit commercial banks, they are making loaning and interest-setting decisions based on their maximizing their profits. That institutional setting is creating a growth imperative. Okay. So right now is just about, I think, the big question is to realize that having access to money like, should not be a commodity that you buy from someone in the same way that you should not uh, buy the right to vote or buy the right to have... A breathe like- air breathe air or just have education or buy the right not to die when you have a disease. These are the basic toolbox you need to be an active member of any society. So you need, what well, I am for the decommoditization of money. That's the first thing, like money is a public service. Everyone needs to have free access to money and whatever it costs to run a monetary system, that's being finance through taxation in a political manner, in a proportionate manner, in the same way we finance health and all of that. The difference when you do this, and many like in in Sweden, we have the Yak uh, bank movement, which is basically that, which has been existing for a very long time since the 80s, I think, and as a bank since the 90s. Where it's basically this, you know, it's a it's a large pool of people that decide to save money. And then that money is just being used for certain investment and then paid back and then their their own system and then they're kind of sharing through member fees the cost of running that system no one is getting rich out of it it's just very functional it's just a way of having access to money when you want to repair or buy a house and or you want to invest in something at the end of the day that's what we should be doing so the decommodification of money today i think is a priority because for the ecological crisis right now we're just We are facing certain tasks where we need to mobilize resources human resources natural resources and actually sometimes to demobilize certain natural resources and often we can't because we cannot have access to the money that will allow us to do these changes because we're living in a society where everything is commodified so power depends on purchasing power and so you are you will have to convince either the banks all rich savers to give you money in order to do something that's not the way to go it's not going to work that way and it's not been working in the last few decades where we've been trying to do this so I think here we need a total revamp or like our moments where we decide as a society we create ourselves a purchasing power when we create money and moments where we decide to destroy it so proposals around like the idea of sovereign money as a kind of like more political system to organize the allocation of money, I think is a, is a good step. And for me in my thesis of the political economy of degrowth from 2019, I'm coupling this as a kind of sovereign money as a decommodification of money itself, leading then to a democratic mechanism of allocation where we can decide to even use alternative local currencies to have more precise means of allocation and as as these as kind of transitional instruments to go to, to what we discussed before, these kind of post money forms of allocation, gift reciprocity that we want to see thriving. Why do we want? And I swear I stopped talking after this, because <laughs> as David Graeber said, you know, that's that's the social glue right there. It's just like is the it's I think when you look at an economy, what you see. Through national accounting like gdp and inflation and prices is give you the impression of what this economy is about but if you take away trust gift and reciprocity any economy will collapse over days you know, like straight, if parents stop caring for their kids for free, if, you know, neighbors stop watching over each other, if people stop cooperating, stop, you know, respecting the cues, then straight away, you're just, you have a zombie film without zombies, that's what you would have. And so if that's true, I think we need to invest in our capacity for these relationship of gift and reciprocity to thrive. And today, that means opposing the reverse, so the the revert trend, which is this commodification of every single gift and reciprocal relationship that still meant, manages to exist within that capitalist society.
1: If really we can into the show, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I was okay. going to say
0: really, really quickly, then we, I want to get back to what you were going to say earlier about the World Bank, Amanda. But, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Tim, I just want to say just from the bottom of my heart, I just appreciate everything you just said so much. I, I'm, I live for these conversations. I live to get nerdy. I think we need to get into the the inner mechanics of how the world works. But I just totally agree with everything you just said, and and I think it is essential to – Transition. It is essential for us to not think that we can just snap our fingers. And I was actually going to going to retort at one thing you were saying about taxes funding things. I was going to basically talk about MMT and their perspective on mm. taxation doesn't really fund things. But then I was just thinking about it. Like, well, we don't actually want the the oxygen that we you know innovate and create and design the world with to to be mandated and controlled by a centralized government. We, we want a system that is truly participatory. We want a fluid decentralized, decolonialized feedback system where all peoples in society are working together to solve problems instead of any central authority. I I believe that to my bones and I think the social science aligns with that. that, that that's the most optimal state for human beings to thrive in, for us to access collective intelligence, for us to create a much more efficient, fluid, dynamic and complex system like the libertarians say you can you can take interest out of money or or that you can do these things you can't just do anything you can't just do anything without existing in a matrix a web a completely integral network of other people other lives other very complex systems coming together constantly and I think more and more the more I think about this and deconstruct it and talk to smart people and you know Take my own brain out and wash it and put it back in. I think you know. I used to think we have the answers and you know the the, that they're it's so clear and you know automation and all these things. It's much more complicated that the the answer and the solution is a way of thinking is a way of of constantly deconstructing reality as you
1: see it. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I can I can give something very concrete for our listeners. Um, So today, you know, we tend to evaluate our participation in society based on like what you buy, and what you produce basically your job. But as a little exercise, you know, draw, like a map of economic participation that is not based on these two monetary relations. So look at your, that's the kind of tool we use in feminist economics It's very useful because it shows you economic activity beyond the prism of money. So look at your day 24 hours, and look at every single moment where you participate in the creation of some kind of value, okay? Can be something very abstract. You know, you, you just, you, you bring your kids to school or at some point you're gonna, you know, uh, correct a Wikipedia article, you're gonna give, you know, review your friend's book, that, you know, all of that, you map it out. When we do this, we realize that actually uh, the creation of value is very much decentralized. It's these very complex uh, systems. But the creation of monetary value, on the other hand, is very centralized. Uh, So we have these, we tend to think, people very often, you know, they they come at me and they're like, do you want somehow like centralized state state planning planning because capitalism is a decentralized way of organizing the economy? I was like, not, completely not. Today's economy (laughs) is planned, it's planned by, you know, a minority of, of wealth holders. Like 1%. you go to the supermarket and uh, the people that own that supermarket and the manager of that supermarket have decided what you can buy and at what price. So it's a plutocratic form of planning where allocation is based on purchasing power. I mean, you know, when I explain this in a room, I'm always asking, you know, raise your hand if you have a Ferrari. Yeah, usually in the kind of crowds I talk to, no one has a Ferrari. But the allocation of, Fer- we have a limited amount of Ferraris in society today. And we allocate them based on purchasing power real quick and they're only limited...
0: valuable insofar as they are scarce if there were tons exactly. of ferrari they wouldn't be worth
2: shit. exactly Sorry, and same thing we have a very limited number of organs available for you know transplant we allocate them but not based on purchasing power based on different criteria so here i think we if we want and i believe in i think in that ideal of taking back control of the economy for a planning that is more organic like what people call a well-being economy so a, a, a planning where when you make decisions of what to consume what to produce how to exchange thing how to extract and to what level so the way you interact with nature you always ask yourself like use values question first so you know concrete need satisfaction before you bring the monetary the financial the economic in that thing is just it's it's Logistics of, you know, asking once you've decided the need, you've identified an unmet need, you've identified people with skills and time and resources and infrastructure to do that, you've agreed on ways of doing it in a way that makes sense using technologies that people consider to be, uh, you know, desirable, you've settled, then maybe there's a bit of money going around in order to organize the allocation of certain things. That's just that's details. That's just the details after that it doesn't even come into the matter. The matter. So now, I think here, if we want to organize um, a planning system that is just more effective, uh, would not be very difficult, actually, than just the market planning of today, because distribution of goods and services based on purchasing power in an economy with high rates of economic inequality, it's a pretty stupid way of, you know, organizing <laughs> allocation and the rise of rates of poverty in many high-income countries. I don't know for, I don't have numbers for other countries, but I've been tracking these in France and they're pretty shocking, is is the best symptom of like the failure of capitalism as a system of allocation, and especially this this focus on market allocation uh, to deliver well-being for all within planetary uh, boundaries.
1: I think we could have ended the episode 15 minutes ago and it would have been still so many layers of value and now you're just putting icing on the cake and it is so cathartic. This entire conversation has been utterly gratifying and I cannot wait for our listeners to hear it. Um, this is ammunition that we all needed um, and especially the people that are still uh, learning these theories and these concepts about different ways to allocate goods, you know. Um, so on that note, uh, being that you have such authority, if you will, for lack of a better term, in this field of research and in this field of uh, social knowledge and, you know, economy economy related uh, dynamics, I wanted to read a few sentences out loud from this uh, article I was reading last night, as I said, from the worldbank.org website. Um, I I, I see the indicators. I can read between the lines here, but I would love to have you read in between the lines for us if you would... uh, if you would be so inclined. So it speaks a lot to the um, mainstream narrative that we're all trying to combat here. And obviously through all the things that have been said here today, we know the antidote to this mainstream narrative, but still it strikes me as so formidable, so intimidating knowing this is what we're up against. This is what the general population is absorbing and believing. So the article reads as such, global growth is slowly Sharp, I'm sorry. Oh, global growth is slowing sharply with worldwide economic output projected to be just 1.7% in 2023, according to the latest analysis from the World Bank Group. Uh, World Bank economists are warning that the downturn would be the wide, would be widespread and any adverse development risk would push the global economy into a recession. Slowing growth affects 95% of advanced economies and nearly 70% of emerging markets and developing economies. With the potential for increasing poverty, this could be the sharpest downturn in five decades. Now, what I hear there is a lot of fear-mongering, a lot of, oh no, people are going to get poor, there's going to be more issues we're going to go into a recession to me what i hear is they are skirting around the fact that there's other options and other possibilities and speaking more toward we have to support we have to sustain infinite growth somehow but what do you interpret from that
2: i think that text here is uh, the perfect symbol of how much we've turned economic growth into a totem of prosperity and so I'll our- Scared we are at the slowing down of economic growth, which is not only something that is happening now as a kind of accident, is what we call the secular stagnation. So we observe in decades in all income countries the progressive slowing down of rates of GDP growth. And economists don't know how to explain it. We don't know. It's slowing down. I mean, if you ask ecological economists, I think they have a better idea because we understand that at some point, you know uh, it's 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 more complicated for, very large economies to access uh, resources and pollution spaces to just deal with their, their huge metabolism. But anyway, just that's that's the thing we're observing. And then you can have two reactions. You can be like, "Shit, this this is bad, right? This is bad. It's like we're running out of 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 water and we're gonna die of thirst in the middle of the desert." Or you can be like, "Well, it means we've arrived somehow. Just you know, an economy." Can grow up to a point where it got a, a size where it can function properly. And I think most high income economies have overstretched over that size a long time ago, hence mm-hmm. the need for degrowth. But the logic being like the same way that all human bodies, you know, we just grow up, we grow when we're kids. And, you know, when you're 25, you switch, your physical growth stops, uh, and you switch to fully qualitative development. You focus on other things. So I would like us as economists to accept the fact that, yeah. At some point, quantitative growth stop, which is great, which means actually it's gonna simplify very much uh, our interaction with nature. It's gonna make it easier to be sustainable. And that's also gonna liberate a lot of hours for qualitative development. Let me just give you one example, uh, advertising. Advertising as a sector uh, is extremely useful to maximize quantitative growth, to sell stuff. But at the moment where you don't have any interest in selling more stuff, especially in convincing people to buy stuff they don't need. Uh, Well, you don't need advertisements. So everyone working in marketing and advertisement can just stop. If you're a mainstream economist here, you fall off your chair. Oh my God, risk of unemployment. But if you're a feminist economist, you're like, look, that means you're going to liberate so many hours of available. Human resources to do something else. So actually, your economy is getting more performance. You don't need to do that shit anymore. You can focus on just uh, reinforcing social relationship, having more sophisticated and democratic process of governance to end the natural resources, to democratize, you know, monetary governance. which requires a lot of time, and so these kind of things. So for me, I, I, am more on the sides of when I see an economy slowing down. First, I'm like. <laughs> oh, okay i'm like that's when i hear economic growth something growing you know i like kate rayworth when she say, you go to the doctor and they're like oh we've we found some growth in your back you know like, you would freak out like, <laughs> what the fuck? that's not good that's the thing you tell an ecological economist and economy is growing either you're malawi and i'm like okay good for you guys You you know you're producing things you probably need you know the global South at some point, if you don't have much, you will need to agitate yourself. And so if we measure it from above, we'll see this as some kind of growth of use, and it's no problem at all. Actually, we need more of that in a certain part of the world. But if you see a rich industrial country that keeps growing, I'm like, oh, that's that's not good. There's a problem there. So the fact that it's slowing down is good news. It's not um, problem solved because we have accumulated decades of overproduction and overconsumption, which, I mean, you can link to ecological overshoot. So we need a hell of a diet, which is massive in countries like uh, the US, Canada, and Australia, a bit smaller in European countries. So it's relative basically to your overshoot, but this kind of degrowth is gonna be different in scales. Same in spirit and qualitative as we talked, but different in scale. So for example, in the US, the decommodification of healthcare is going to be a, a tougher challenge, that decommodification of healthcare in France, which is already partly uh, decommodified. So we all starting from, from a different gate. But what I see also from this text is like, and I think sometime like in in 100 years, uh, we'll read these out like in museums of economic history and kids will be marveling like, oh, wow, you know, how were people so obsessed in the same way that when you look this this account of anthropologists about like these um, pre-modern society that we're sacrificing humans hoping it would just make like water rain and you're a climate scientist you look at this you know it's kind of cute they thought that like human sacrifices had any correlation with the rain and then in a hundred years we'll look at this like it's so cute like in 2020 people thought that somehow like the the they would increase like GDP. they would sacrifice public services in order to raise gdp growth and somehow they thought that was just correlated with well-being like idiots so i think these <laughs> this text is really relevant today that we need to address these questions and and i tell this in a very humble manner because I've, so i've been at university for the last 15 years i've you know i've always been in the field of economics doing this stuff I've my phd in economics i research in the school of economics so I've, I've been spending my full-time job is to think about these kind of stuff and of course you have the imposter syndrome where you're like well i i kind of feel like the the zero vigor zero zero one percent of people disagreeing against like everyone and sometimes i've got a sanity check i was like tim let's face it it's more likely you're wrong and they're right than the opposite but the more i dig into this and the more we are digging into this the more we realize the absurdity of that situation that Mm. starts like reality starts more and more to feel like dystopian science fiction yes
0: yes
2: the more I've been working on this and the more my my work got popular and I got invited to discuss about it with governments and CEOs of big companies and uh, things like this. And I've not been argued against, like on on these kind of points, which I think goes to show that uh, the system as it is today is surviving a bit in a zombie-like state where there's no one really managing to Defend it in a way that is very convincing, like Milton Friedman style, you know, like I've got a whole theory explaining how this is going to lead to well-being. People that don't dare to Milton Friedman this, Uh, uh, I'm not talking about politics here, I'm talking about like scientists, like academics, they don't even dare doing this. But the system kind of like survives out of its the momentum of its previous years. And so here we have to just do a lot of dismantling, involving also dismantling in our collective imaginaries, all these bogus theories, green growth, trickle down theories. that are still kind of like existing like zombie fallacies in our collective imaginary.
0: I just I feel such a like so a, a, a reflection in that, that like I uh, for you know, in a very different way, professionally study these things too. I don't get paid for it. And CEOs are not asking me my opinion on it, but all day, every day I devote myself essentially to what I would consider the field of ecological economics. I I see myself in in that discipline more and more all the time. And that's really, that's the reality check that we need is rooting our economy, you know, the way that we produce waste and increase efficiency in life, in ecology. To be an ecologist is not enough to be an economist is not enough and i think that it's a very elegant and beautiful fusion and i just i love talking to people like you anybody that calls themselves an ecological ec- economist those are my people those are people i want to talk to but yeah i just appreciate that so much and appreciate the work you're doing and, and i'm i'm just i'm struck by there's a, there's a positivity in the fact that there's no argument like my friend simon michaud i'm not sure if you're familiar with his work but it's excellent work on minerals and energy and just he's a great systems thinker in general but he's he's in the same category where he's consulting with the world bank and the imf and all these institutes and they don't really have arguments and that's almost optimistic but the truth is we have constructed an absolutely an almost entirely automated system that exists without our control and the the philosophers of capitalism did this intentionally the invisible hand of the market that it's supposed to be uncontrollable Oh shit, hang on one second. I need to switch my battery. The invisible
1: hand of them of the market is a mechanism of austerity, you know, not not to go way back into our conversation, but that that's all it is. It's just um it's it's not regulation, it's dysregulation. It's it's a lack of structure, really. It's quite like controlled chaos, I think, capitalism, especially.
2: Mm. And And just one small example, um, I guess, you know, uh, and our listeners must know what Paul Krugman is, as a famous American economist and famous american bullshitter <laughs> the biggest I, bullshitter yeah. is all oh, real quick real quick we we were talking earlier about
0: being uh you're in the you're in the business school and i just i just think this joke is really funny that uh like studying business is like that's like first degree that's like second degree manslaughter like you hit someone with your car but like studying econ economics that's like yes that's that's like premeditated conspiracy to commit mass murder
2: and I, I i'm true. gonna say something that's gonna sound a bit strange but i'm like uh, imagine Like, it's strange to be an economist nowadays because, I mean, if you want to be a social scientist, like if your interest is to understand humans, like surely you would just be an anthropologist or a sociologist, or if you're focusing on individuals, you'll be a psychologist. Like people that want to be economists, that's suspicious in the first place. I was like, what the hell would you <laughs> want to focus on that part of the economy? So that's why even, and I'm an economist, I'm the pure product of that. So you can just throw me the stone. I accept it. But I think like economics is basically a social science with disability first. It's like, as an analytical framework is just very... is is not as powerful as what we have in the plurality of the social sciences. And it's also a bit morbid in the sense of like, you know, John Maynard came he was talking with this kind of like morbid obsession with money. I think economists, they have a bit of that flow. But so the Paul Krugman story is like last week in The New York Times, uh, Paul Krugman published like a a two page op-ed on green growth, basically being like one why green growth is possible. And he's calling degrowthers, you know, councils of despair, uh, an environmental fallacy. People, we don't understand what economic growth is. Blah blah blah. I've got a Nobel Prize. Let me show you. You guys are idiots. Green growth is possible. And he brings two pieces of evidence. Say, look, air quality in New York, in New York, is better than air quality in Delhi in India, but GDP is higher in New York than in India therefore you see not incompatible piece of evidence number one piece of evidence number two look per capita emissions in UK have reverted back to their levels in the 1850s so that's these two pieces of evidence which honestly you know I've been in a lot of pub talk about that stuff like drunk pub discussion like banter about green growth I've never gone down to such a low level of like like evidence it's it's almost like it's comedy, grasping at straws
1: it's,
0: it's like saying it's like saying we found higher levels of dopamine in this crackhead's head therefore he's happier
2: pretty much <laughs> it's it's very doubtful how you you get to that especially from someone that has not been doing research on the matter i mean so i've, I've wrote an answer and uh which i've posted on my blog uh last thursday so you, you can have a look if you want to see how I link it in the description. That argument, please do. It's not the first time I do it. I've been doing this pretty much since 2019, regularly with a lot of people. And you know, I'm I'm no one. I'm just a, a young, I'm just Justin Bieber of economics. I just came around. You know, I've got no. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like a kid on the block. Degrad you know? yourself like that. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> and so, like, I do this. And there's absolutely no resistance whatsoever. Like you show people are wrong and they're like, oh yeah, I might be wrong. I'm like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? You're you're, like, you're defending a theory that basically is gonna cost us the habitability of the earth. That's like how big that deal is. Like if you're wrong, we lose the planet And, and the livelihood of like half of the planet living on it. That's how big that deal is. So if you, you better be fucking sure you're right about your thing. Like, and if you think you're right, I want to see evidence. Like I want to see miles of written evidence of this. And I want the best people double checking the numbers and numbers and numbers again. I don't want to see someone telling me like, I've been in Delhi and guys, it's it's very polluted. And no, 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 no. So I'm like, here, there's a problem, because this is one of the most, um, the scariest problem in the world. And we're kind of like arguing over it, over such a sloppy use of numbers based based on hearsay and these kind of like economic fallacies based on, you know, self-reinforcing assumptions, I assume them this and I assume them that, and therefore logically it follows that of course I can have whatever result I want because I've made, I've assumed every single step of the reasoning. So, And I've been doing this intensely since 2019, checking every single one of these empirical studies, looking at the scientific evidence doing that. And the proof is nowhere, nowhere has been managing to show that green growth is possible. And so this kind of like surviving at this kind of like, we hope it is somehow it's like the loch ness monster you know it's like me too i would like the loch ness monster to exist (laughs) actually it's a cool story it's a cool story but if i had to choose you know does the loch ness monster exist? if you're wrong you die if you're right to you survive, I will be like, you know what, Precociously, I'm going to say no, because based on observation and what we've been trying to show right now, we've not seen the proof that it exists. And so therefore, it's perhaps more likely it doesn't exist that it does. And even that comparison is like a bit more difficult than green growth because green growth is not like the Loch Ness monster. We can actually look at everything we've been doing and measure it. There's no uncertainty. There's no 100-meter deep lake where we've not been. We've been everywhere it's been studied we see it clearly all of that is available data so again if you have the proof to show us it's possible where is it i have not seen it and i don't think anyone has it and so in that case why are we risking the future of humanity based on a bet that most likely comes out of just the assumption of some obsolete economic models created by some dudes in the 21st century Which seems a bit like a risky bet i'll be like even on that side i would rather trust the collective intelligence of all those you know stewards of nature and in in countries that have been surviving in sustainability for longer than capitalism ever existed i'll be like you know if there's an uncertainty i'll just let's ask them what they've been doing and let's do exactly the same because you know that's we have to decide between the two. So actually now we see like the comeback of these kind of like uh, pre-modern stewardship models uh, based on indigenous rights and these kind of stuff that have been just in the historical record, so much more effective than basically turning carbon into a commodity and hoping that somehow the market solves it, which has done terribly in the last record. So I'll stop ranting about this, uh, but just I'd... here we need to make <laughs> the difference between like, we need to assess we the love your s- scientific solidity of certain theories yeah um, just same way I just saying absolutely r- real yeah.
0: real quick here I, I gotta intervene here because i have 74 notifications on my phone it's blowing up i think we have other things to do uh today we we need to
1: unfortunately i, I would love I, to just I, keep talking with her friend yeah here. we
0: I, I love talking to you i'm having a fucking blast this is what i want to be doing all the time i just i love what you're saying i love the fucking vision and the beauty i just wanted to say one more thing to that real quick that if we're right even if we're wrong And we improve the world in literally every single objective observable metric other than the bigness of it, the moreness of it, the the imaginary numbers that do not correspond to the ecological stewardship of the planet, to the real needs and, and, you know, hungers of humanity and to the actual happiness of humans. Oh, no, we made the world better. We, you know, decreased (laughs) the amount of, of wasted effort we put into getting a cheeseburger in life. We can still have all that stuff. We can still have all the fucking cool, nice things. We can have jet skis and trucks. And we share them, though. That's what George Monbo said. It was really simple. It's like, we can all have nice things. We just fucking share them. We put them in the commons. There used to be amusement parks in the commons. And in America, you know why they shut them down? Public amusement parks, free for everyone. They shut them down so black people couldn't have them. So this whole thing, this whole austerity, this whole anti-anti-anti-degrowth phenomenon of Pro capitalism and endless growth, which is cancer. If you grew forever, you'd fucking die. If one organism grew forever, it would it, it would suck the resources out of everything else. Blah 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 blah. Okay, but yeah, we're this is this is about creating an elegant solution to uh, to all these problems and creating new systems altogether that really just make all these problems that we squabble over and that we have all these dickheads on TV arguing over completely obsolete. The economists, as they are, I'm sorry, guys, you're all out of a job. You're all and that's a good thing like you were saying earlier elimination of, of unnecessary labor is a good thing and that brings us into the wage paradigm and all this stuff but we, we're going to have to go at some point we're going to have to do this again <laughs> absolutely have to yeah please let's um, go I'll ahead and schedule back. round two
1: back. so um, wonderful But i, I want so, so to leave you a question here said.
0: and this is a, a great a great outro how do we like the fucking people blowing my phone up that need to understand this lesson how do we degrow our own lives Really quick, quick thing here. I think this is a really important met lesson for people. If you are so reactive all the time, reacting to a reaction of a reaction of a reaction of a reaction, if you are thinking all the time, if you never rest, if you never slept, if you don't have rest in your life, you're not making good decisions because you're not actually letting your brain your mind, your deeper unconsciousness and the and the processing power of your full brain, work on problems. You're just in the tippy top of your active mind saying, What if we do this? 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 That's where we are all the time. And so we need deep rest. So, Tim, how do we degrow in our own lives? Not our
2: macroeconomic status. How, how do, do we, we, we take naps? How do we yeah, how do we chill?
1: <laughs> like like, like wow, you started like, out with.
2: <laughs> taking a nap is that's that was gonna be my only advice for you guys. Just have a little nap. Uh I it's difficult for me to answer this, uh, because I, I believe in, in this principle of autonomy and self-determination. So I don't think, especially me as an economist, I'm I'm starting with the bias. Like I don't want to be the one telling anyone what they should be doing. What actually all my work has been leading me to is like we need to decentralize these decisions and empower ourselves to make things that seemed economically impossible because it was impossible in this kind of matrix giant game of monopoly we call capitalism so now like is the moment where we need to find um the, the way we contribute and the way we want to contribute and all of that's going to be unique based on your position your dreams your history and all of that and no one is going to tell you no, no one is going to tell you what to do and that's the great thing about it that's what makes it scary and complicated, but and that will be my, my in common because my thesis was strongly influenced by uh, French existentialist philosophy, so this kind of project of, of self-determination and radical autonomy at the individual level as the only way of building a workable uh, participatory democracy. Only if we manage to regain critical thinking and individual autonomy can we participate together in creating rules that work for everyone. So right now in that moment like don't go looking outside of yourself for these what should i do go look inward
0: and pet a Beautiful. cat take a nap all right Beautiful. <laughs> thank you so much tim we're going to definitely do this again
1: thank you, thank cool. you come back. thanks for the
0: invite me, on a journey to the heart of the world, I go further than I've ever gone before on this quest to escape the shadow of the system and find real organic human life, still connected to the rejuvenating value system of nature above all. I'm in Colombia now, finishing up the first half of the adventure of a lifetime in a lifetime of adventure tell the stories of indigenous peoples in a battle of the life system against the money system that seeks to destroy the world. Words can't express what I've been through and recorded already. This is the most amazing story on earth, and just one strand in a tapestry of solutions and stories and heroes standing up for the world, giving nature a voice. The coming together of ancient and modern to save the planet we all share. All of this has come out of your donations and my own pockets, and I need help to keep going. I was robbed of my phone by a gang last night, I've been explosively sick, perpetually just getting by, and I've had my heart broken every single day by the beauty and tragedy of these incredible people who need so desperately for us to listen to them.
2: La tierra, la tierra donde yo estoy parado, es mi mamá. La mamá no necesita consejo. La mamá tiene todo. La mamá tiene mariposas. Tiene abejas. Tiene animales.
0: So they can save us, not the other way around. It's been an incredible honor to be able to tell these stories, to share this wisdom, so we can come together and change with the world. And come back to what just plain makes sense, to what is human, to what is natural, to what is beautiful and good. (laughs) I'm gearing up for the next trip to the Ecuadorian Amazon to work with the Achuar and their efforts to protect their lands and waters from the fossil fuel industry. And I still have a long way to go.
2: tener de hacer mucho dinero destruyeron la naturaleza, ahora como ya tienen sistema y dinero, ahora con el mismo dinero empiecen a sanar lo que es natural.
0: This is a penultimate quest ultimately to connect to who we are and what really matters, to get to the heart of life, the heart of our own human story. Todos somos iguales. Amen. We are not separate. As humans, as living things, we are not separate from nature and we need each other. I can't wait for you to see this footage and to weave it together into this macrocosmic Earth tapestry, this story of Earth that's bigger than I am, bigger than everyone involved, and I need your help to tell it. Please donate to the campaign in the description. Every bit helps. Give what you can and share if you care. I am eternally grateful.